With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. It went from making a couple thousand dollars to in the closet, there'll be half a million dollars all in cash. It just went so fast where even to count money, like my hands would be hurting because you're counting all these tens and fives and tens. It started to become so normal, so desensitized. I wouldn't even flinch if I was on my way to drop a box off that, you know, had 40, 50 pounds in it. If there was a police car behind me, you know, you do something long enough, it almost feels normal. Even though it's not fucking normal. This is Finding Founders. I'm Samuel Donner, and today we're telling the story of Frederick Hudson, an American businessman, lobbyist, ex-Air Force technician, and former drug dealer who, at the height of his career, managed to transport thousands of bales of marijuana across the border undetected, making a profit of around $22 million each year. This income came at a sharp cost to his mental health and personal security, and ultimately led to a run-in with the law. But like our previous episodes and most things in life, Frederick's story is complex, has layers, and dealing drugs only scrapes the surface. Now, as CEO of the communication tech company Pigeonly, Frederick aims to close the gap between the people behind the prison wall and those outside of it. His story threads us through Florida, California, Arizona, Las Vegas, and Washington, D.C., but begins between skyscrapers along the side streets of Brooklyn, New York. I was born in Brooklyn, New York. I was raised by my mother. It's a single parent household. But during that time while we were living in New York, it was just me, my older sister, my mother, and my younger sister. You know, we were a pretty close-knit family. We lived in lower income neighborhood. It was a tall building. And I remember as a kid going up and down the different floors because all my different friends lived on different floors, whether it be the ninth floor, the 15th floor, the sixth floor. We always had a sense of taking care of each other. And that was something that my mother instilled in us very young where, you know, we always, you know, my siblings always looked out for me. I always looked out for them. Even our friends, we were more like a big extended family, even for the folks that I wasn't necessarily related to. While I was living in Brooklyn, I was fairly young. I was probably 11 or 12. And I just remember walking down the street and seeing plastic little baggies on the floor, or you can sometimes see the syringes on the sidewalk. Now, I knew what it was. I didn't really, at that age, understand the implications of it and how it tied into the fragment of what my reality was at the time. But, you know, it was something that you saw and you didn't give much thought to it, but it wasn't something foreign either. In some ways, I may have even be desensitized from it just because, you know, it was what my normal was. The innocence of youth allowed Frederick to float past the drug scene of Brooklyn unscathed. A lingering memory of syringes and baggies seems to be the only mark of this addictive undercurrent but maybe it planted the seeds of later interests. I'm not entirely sure, but what is apparent is that his family insulated against the challenges of the greater community. Those challenges were immense. To put things in perspective, Frederick grew up in the late 80s and early 90s, a time where crack cocaine usage in New York tripled. 
Yet somehow, through all this, Frederick's close-knit family acted as a barrier against the chaos. But no barrier can hold forever. So Frederick's mom sought asylum in a place where these challenges would be less of a threat. Now let's go back to Florida. So you said you were, you're moving down. Why were you moving? Do you remember what you thought of that move? I remember as a kid being really upset and really emotional about the move just because, you know, I was just thinking about all my friends I was going to miss because, again, these were people that, you know, I was with on a daily basis and they felt like my extended family. So I was either at their house or my house. And I think that was the biggest part that was emotional for me. And I didn't really understand at the time why my mother made the decision to move. But, you know, as I grew older, I understood, you know, she really wanted to give us a better life and to bring us to a place where, you know, we could have more than what we had in in New York. Florida was definitely a culture shock. I remember the first thing I noticed is that, you know, coming from New York, there's concrete everywhere and it's not a very green place, right? In Florida, there was grass and palm trees and it was very green and there was water everywhere. So it was just very different. But then one of the things that stood out to me is at the time, St. Petersburg was very segregated. So all the white folks lived on the north side of town and all the black folks lived in the south side of town. And this was a historic thing. It, it was that way and it's been that way for generations and generations. And that was probably one of the first thing I noticed. I was in a neighborhood where everyone was black. And then as soon as you crossed town, everyone was white. And then you didn't feel like you belonged there. And then as I started getting older and, you know, I went into middle school, that's when I started seeing more of the economic side of the drug industry. And what I mean by the economic side is that I would see people that would have nice stuff and would always seem to have money and cars and nice clothes and shoes and stuff like that. But they didn't really have a job. I couldn't really connect those dots because, you know, they were images of success in the neighborhood. But they wasn't, you know, doctors, lawyers and what would be what society would uphold mostly as image of success. So, it, you know, we had our own versions of heroes. Heroes for, for me was the guy who always took care of us. He always made sure that we had money to go to the candy store. And, you know, if my grandma, you know, washing machine broke down, you know, he would give her the money to fix it or buy a new one. Those were the heroes in my in my neighborhood. And in almost exclusively, all those guys were in the drug business. One of the heroes that I saw that I was closest to was Fry. And, you know, we're blood-related cousins. And he was always one of those people that he had the respect of the neighborhood. He had the respect of everyone. And he always was taking care of the family and even friends and just whoever needed it. But he didn't have, you know, this traditional job. He didn't go to college. Even in the beginning, you know, I didn't really understand quite what he was doing. But he always seemed to be like that Robin Hood figure in the neighborhood. And I think, for me, that was very attractive and, and inspiring to be able to see someone that did it their way and took care of their loved ones and the people around them. There was this one night. I might have been around 14 years old and he took me to the club with him. Obviously, at 14 years old, you normally would not be able to get in the club. But because I'm with Fry, I can get right in. There's no issues. So we go in and, you know, we're hanging out and and I'm just observing because this is one of my first times just kind of being out like that. And then you start hearing gunshots ring out. 
And then it's just these, you know, these loud, just pop, 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 pop. So the first thing Fry does is he grabs me and he throws me in the backseat of the car and he tells me to lay down on the back of the car. And I'm laying down, but I'm still curious. So I'm peeking up to look to see what's going on. And I was surprised to see that he didn't retreat to the vehicle either. What I saw him do actually, which was, which was actually kind of crazy, is that he walked up to the person that had the gun and that was shooting. And he literally talked to, talked to him and the guy put the gun away and, and walked off. So whatever Fry said to him, it was, it was probably along the lines of, you know, if you don't stop this, you're gonna have much bigger issues than, what, than what's going on right now. And from there, you know, the guy just retreated and it was done and the party resumed like nothing ever happened. It was just a level of, I don't know if it was fear or respect or a mixture of both, but he just had a reputation that commanded respect from people. And I've just seen him navigate a number of sticky situations with the level of calm and coolness that I always envied. His cousin's composure in dangerous situations inspired Frederick. He admired it and sought to one day command the same respect. And I think this desire for respect was especially pronounced as he tried to establish himself within a new community dotted with towering palms and dewy grass. But this was no island paradise. Segregated neighborhoods, inequality, and lack of mainstream opportunity led to a communal admiration for heroes of the dark underbelly. The money flaunted in his community stemmed from illicit, maybe dangerous activity. But still, the good life from those means seemed more attainable than the mobility endorsed by the government. His cousin's ability to provide for his loved ones, his Robin Hood-esque persona, was something Frederick revered. He tried to pursue the same path. As I started getting older, I started to know generally what he was doing. I generally knew he was selling drugs. I generally knew that it was crack cocaine and marijuana. I generally knew these things, but I didn't know the specifics. But I just knew he was involved in that. And... Even then, I didn't really have a desire to do that for me because it was never really glorified. It was always positioned and it was always communicated as a means to an end. As I got older, I said, I'm going to do it my own way. I'm going to go and I'll find you know, my own path. And when I started going to high school, started meeting different people, I was probably about 15, 16 at the time. I had found someone that would have access to crack cocaine. And, you know, I said, I'm going to try my hand at selling it myself. Did that feel scary to you or did that feel like, oh, I'm, I'm embodying what my heroes are doing? I don't know that it felt scary. I would say that I understood that there's risks. But again, I think because I saw it so much and because I was around it so much, it was so ingrained into the culture that it almost felt as if it was normal, even though it was highly illegal. I started cutting school a lot, and the guy that I met in school that supplied me, I bought a couple cookies from him, is what it's called. Then he showed me how you cut it up. That was that. So then from there, I already knew people in the street that was always selling it. So I tried to go back to those folks because I didn't have clientele. The problem is, is that unless you're selling it directly to the consumer, the only way to make a profit is, is if you're buying it at wholesale and then giving it to whoever is selling it to the consumer. But, you know, what I was doing backwards is I was buying it retail and then trying to sell it <laughs> again at retail. 
So I wasn't making anything, right? So it was a complete wash. But I was determined and I stuck with it. And then it was one day, I'll never forget, I was at the trap, which is basically the house where you'll set up and you'll rent out. And then that's where consumers will come. The people will come and find it and buy it. Um, there was this lady that, that I recognized. And I recognized her because she was my classmate's mother. And I saw how bad and how strung out she was. She was extremely skinny, looked very malnourished. You know, her teeth was decaying. Clothes could barely stay on her because she was so small. And when I saw that, she was willing to give up anything or everything just to have her next fix. And it just really impacted me. It impacted me because I knew her daughter and I was friends with her daughter. And I just couldn't look at my friend every day and know that I was contributing to that. That's not an option. And then shortly after, my aunt passed away, which is actually Fry's mother. She passed away, even though she wasn't on drugs at the time, but because of prior drug use for years and years and years, she had tore her body up so much that she just wasn't able to make it. I felt extremely bad because for me, it was a means to an end. For me, it was to make money. For me, it was buy a car or clothes or whatever. But seeing the direct impact that drug in particular was making, um, at least in my community, it was actually devastating. And it just further cemented in my mind how, how, how far I wanted to disassociate myself with that. And from that point on, you know, I left it alone. Loss hit close to home. That loss made Frederick think about the consequences of his lifestyle. These drugs erode communities. And that erosion was personified by his friend's mother, a body deteriorating before his very eyes. This moment is so interesting to observe because there was almost this entrepreneurial narrative of success stemming from the trap houses to dealing on the streets, a narrative that Frederick bought into. He saw the cars, the money, the success, and was blinded by it until one day the veil fell and he saw the horror behind the curtain. Frederick had taken initiative when he started dealing and now he employed that same initiative to secure a job outside this destructive cycle. So after we was in St. Petersburg, my mom then bought a house in, in a town called Brandon, which is about 45 minutes across the bridge in the Tampa area. Now I'm in a suburban town and it's nothing like what I was used to seeing in St. Petersburg. I'm seeing big yards and, you know, people coming and cutting grass and stuff. So then I come up with this idea. I'm going to sell the service of cutting grass. And then this guy that I see, I think I can sell better than him and give him the job. And, and it worked out pretty well. With that, I was able to buy my first car. What I appreciated in that process was the idea of just identifying a way to make a process better, solving a problem, and then having people willing to pay you for your solution. That was my first aha moment. It's like, okay, I get it. This is how business is done. You really just solve a problem for somebody. The aha moment that Frederick refers to highlights one of the most satisfying aspects of doing something for another person, something that has the capacity to improve their quality of life even if it's only in a small way. Still, it was a challenging contrast comparing what he made working these humble gigs to the money he made dealing. But Brandon, a small suburban town outside Tampa, allowed for opportunities that expanded beyond St. Petersburg. Drug dealing had been materially rewarding, yeah, but the sense of remorse and complicity that accompanied it couldn't be ignored. 
These side jobs kept Frederick financially afloat without jeopardizing his moral responsibility, while simultaneously providing him with the flexibility needed to branch out and explore something entirely different. So it seems like you're exploring this untamed, build-it-yourself entrepreneurial route, and then you have the Air Force. How the Air Force, you know, came came about is that every Thanksgiving we would, you know, obviously all go to my grandma's house and we would have, you know, all the family would get together. And my grandma's, you know, house was right in the middle of Southside St. Pete. And it's a place where my mother grew up in and Fry grew up in. My uncle, he would drive down from, he was at the time he was living in Alabama and he was in the Air Force. He was arguably the most successful person that was in a legal area in my family that I knew. So that's what put playing the bug in my head. And I was like, oh, wow, this is this is cool. He always seemed very well put together. He never seemed like he was hurting for anything and he would take care of grandma and stuff. So then he just also was, you know, one of those people that I looked up to. And I started looking into that. And then I also didn't think at the time, because my older sister, she um, went off to college and going to college, it wasn't something that was interesting to me. So it wasn't even something I ever considered. I was thinking like, okay, I'm going to be out of school soon. I need to do something. I mean, I didn't do too well in the street stuff. That didn't really work out well for me. So, you know, I need to do something. So then I looked at the Air Force as, as an option. On just a random day, you know, my uncle was telling me about it and, you know, he said, yeah, you can do this, you can do this, you can do this, you can do this, you can do all these type of jobs. And and I said, OK, that, that that's cool. It wasn't like what I was thinking where, you know, your infantry and your, you know, you got a shovel or a gun or something all day long. And he said, why don't you just take this test and then see how you score and see, you know, see what type of jobs would be available to you. So I said, OK, fine, I'll do that. So I went and took the test and I scored really high in electrical and environmental, which is basically the environmental system, the air systems and oxygen and cooling and all that stuff. And then also the electrical system on the F-16 aircraft. And that was that was my job. So that seemed interesting to me. And again, it allowed me to scratch that itch where I always felt the need to solve a problem and troubleshoot and, and, and fix a problem. That's basically what my job was. So that's how I ended up. And that's what connected the dots to, to the Air Force. You go to basic training. Basic, basic training is in um, Lackland, Texas. After basic training, I believe it was like six weeks or 12 weeks, something like that. Then you go off to tech school. You know, it's just what you would imagine. It's very specific to whatever your job is. And they teach you all about your job and your field. And then after that, they assign you your first duty station. Somehow, out of all the places and all the bases that I put on my list, um, my first duty station was Las Vegas. You're kind of laughing that you were deployed at Las Vegas. Was there a reason that that area was significant to you? You know, as I think about it now in hindsight, had I been deployed anywhere else, my life would have took a different path, 100%. And what was interesting is because being deployed in Vegas, Fry and D had been traveling back and forth to Vegas because they had moved on from crack and, and cocaine and stuff like that and moved to just dealing marijuana, just strictly marijuana. They didn't want to deal with any of the hard stuff anymore. In most cases, the profit margins that are possible with cocaine is not possible with marijuana, unless you have a connect that puts you damn near at the source from where it's being grown at, or, you know, super high quality marijuana in order to have the right profit margins. So this is why typically what you'll find is the people that are dealing marijuana, they're not making the same money as the people who are dealing crack or cocaine because the profit margins are, are very drastic. Do you know what the, those like the difference in margins are generally? 
So for example, if you bought a brick of cocaine back then for let's say 17, 17,000, you would probably be able to make easily 50, 60, 70,000 off of that. If you bought an equivalent of 17,000 worth of marijuana, then at best you might be able to double that. So that's, that's the difference. And that, that only is true if you do not have a connect that allows you to buy directly from the source when it comes to marijuana, which means at that time, the major producers where marijuana was coming from was Mexico and then certain spots, basically wild grow farms in, in California at the time because it wasn't legalized then. But the majority, the far majority of it, 80% of it, you know, is mostly coming from Mexico. Unless you was able to buy directly from Mexico, you wasn't able to make that same margin. So D ended up being able to secure a connect that allowed him to be able to buy directly from Mexico. So now they're able to make the same type of margins that you can make on a drug that has significantly higher consequences when it comes to you know prison sentences, things like that, does significantly more damage in the community and all those things. They were able now to make the same margins with marijuana um, which then at that point, you know, nobody wanted to deal with, you know, crack cocaine anymore because this wasn't worth it. Frederick continued down the structured path of the Air Force, but parallel to that path walked Dee and Fry, a constant reminder of the life he left and the life he could be tempted to return to. However, Frederick initially drove off the straight and narrow in more productive ways. He sought autonomy outside his job. He wanted to scratch an entrepreneurial itch, and Vegas would be the perfect place to do so. You were on the straight and narrow serving in the Air Force, but I know you also started your window tinting business. Tell the story of that window tinting plus the first interactions that you had with D and Fry in Las Vegas. Probably maybe my first month or two that I was in Vegas, you know, I get a call from D. He's like, yo, I heard you in Vegas. And I said, yeah, you know, I just got here. You know, this was my first station, my first duty station and all that. I was living on base at the time. And he said, oh, I come to Vegas, you know, all the time. I was like, oh, cool. D was a lot more low key than Fry was. He would be doing stuff and nobody really know about it. So he said, yeah, I come out to Vegas all the time. And I said, okay, let's meet up. He said, I'll be there, you know, um, later this week. You know, we met up, we was eating. He was telling me that he was, you know, looking for a place out there and he was going to get, um, he's going to get his own apartment because he comes back and forth a lot. And I said, well, look, I'm also looking to move off base. You know, we can be roommates. You're not going to town that much, but yeah, we can be roommates. And for me, I can get a place that's a little bit cheaper because I can have you as a roommate. You're not in town that much and, you know, it'd be cool. So basically I'm living by myself and I have a roommate that's hardly ever there. He's like, all right, cool. So I rented a place and, you know, we became roommates um, and whenever he was in town, he would just be in and out in town for a day or two. Um, I didn't really know what he, I didn't really get, you know, asked too many questions. Simultaneously during that time, I was, you know, getting familiar with the city. And one day I was driving around, there was this, this store in a corner, this building on the corner, and it had like a big banner on the top that said window tinting, and it was closed down. This time it was, it was right before summer. So this might've been around March and it was starting to heat up. And then summer, you know, it'll get triple digits, you know? So it's not uncommon to have, you know, a day that's hundred and, you know, two degrees, 103 degrees or something like that. That's, that's not uncommon here. What I noticed is that the more I was going around town, I started seeing tennis shops everywhere and it always was busy. There was always, you know, cars coming in and out. There was always people outside and banners and, and stuff. So, I, so I, I pulled over to that place and then I got the, the number to the landlord 
And I called the landlord up and said, hey, you know, I'm thinking about starting a window tending business. And I saw the space was empty. The landlord was very apprehensive about, you know, um, giving it to me because, you know, I didn't have any experience in the business and I didn't really have any money at the time. I finally talked him into giving me a couple months free in rent and um, giving me give me a shot in the place. So he did. And then it was right around tax season, like around April. And I got my first tax return check. And I used that to put the deposit on the building for the tent shop. And then it was like, okay, well, now I got the building. You know, I've never tented a car before. I don't know anything about that. Would you say this is the biggest side hustle yet? Yeah, 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 for sure. That's probably one of those indicator success that you were dreaming about at the Yacht Club, right? Yeah. And, you know, I did my research. So I, I, I called around. I saw what people was charging for it. And I started doing the math. And I was like, OK, well, if we can get this many cars in a day or this many a week and this many a month. You know, it could be X amount of dollars. And that was at that time the most money I had seen at one time. Right. And, and I'm just doing all this math in my head. So I'm like, well, what, the only thing that's stopping me from getting that is getting a good location and getting people who can do the work. Other than that, I can do that tomorrow if, if I had those two things solved. And I can do all this while still <laughs> going to work at the Air Force on swing shift to fix the jets. So that's what I did. You know, I, I would get off work around 11, 12 o'clock at night. I wouldn't have to be back to work until like three, three or four. And so I would get up, you know, fairly early, eight, nine o'clock in the morning, probably seven or eight. And I would work on this during the day. A month later, I was in business. You know, I had no idea. I don't even think I had a business license. I don't think I had any of that stuff at that point because it happened and it came together so fast with me just, you know, just approaching it and just trying to solve one problem at a time. It came together so quickly. I think it was probably a month from the time that I convinced the landlord to let me in a place to the time where I had tenders in there and then we was, you know, making money. So how much were you making? We were doing probably about 20, 30,000 a month. It was more money than I had seen. To me, I was more excited at the fact that this was just some idea and I was able to execute it and then it turned into something tangible for me. I think that's what had me most excited. So because that happened and it happened so fast and so, so almost easy, I was like, well, you know, I'm gonna do it again. The ability to make an idea materialize ignited Frederick's yearning to take risks. The idea stemmed from an analysis of a city's needs, tinted windows in a place that felt unrelenting sunshine. The window tinting process isn't super complicated, but it certainly requires experience. And you definitely have to know what you're doing. So the fact that Frederick, someone with no window tinting experience, was able to secure a viable business and pull in $20,000 to $30,000 per month in revenue, that says something. This was the sort of thing that he was cut out for, and he was ready to duplicate that success. During that time, two things were happening. One, the Air Force was downsizing and it was basically allowing, if you wanted to get out early, you could. They will put you in inactive reserves for the rest of your enlistment time. And then they'll still give you all your benefits and you'll still get all your honorable discharge and all that stuff. So I was like, cool. So I applied for that and I got approved. So now, you know, I was on my way out the Air Force. You know, I had a few more months to do. And then at the same time, Another owner of a, ten, a window tent shop came and approached us and said, hey, you know, we're interested in getting another location. You know, would you be interested in selling? We 
sold it for, I think it was like 150,000 or something like that. So that must have been like the most, most money you've seen at one time. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. This was probably about a six month time period, yeah. It happened so fast that I had no concept of how hard business could be because I, I got lucky on that one. It just worked, right? I was happy to be the right place, right location. That was a really, really good location for that thing. Now, if you put a donut shop there, you probably wouldn't do so well, but it was really good for window tinting. It was like a really good place for window tinting. So I just had a lot of stuff that just worked out well. So I was feeling arrogant at this point. I said, well, you know what? You know, I'm gonna try something else. I said, you know what? I'm gonna do a cell phone store. Long story short, store didn't do well at all. What do you mean by that? Like, and, and how did you start to realize that? It was one of those things where, again, I was in over my head because I thought that I could run the same playbook that I ran for the window tending shop for a cell phone store and I would get the same success out of it. And they're just two very different things and two very different businesses and different customer habits and different motivations on why people come in and buy. It was just too different. And I thought it would all be the same because again, I'm not experienced. I had one win and I thought it would be exactly the same. Most of the money that, that I made in a, in a tent shop went into the cell phone store and I lost it in the cell phone store because we were just basically just paying all the bills without really making any revenue. So you went from rags to riches to rags again. <laughs> exactly. Rags to riches to rags again. The success he found in his window tinting business gave him a false sense of security. This can't fail mentality that in some ways is necessary, but also created blind spots and festered issues that would arise within his next business. As his profits eroded, Frederick was forced to look towards his next step. The business venture that would follow would look entirely different from tints and cell phones, but it wasn't entirely unfamiliar. But you still have a roommate that's doing something. <laughs> yes. And then that's, so that's where he comes in. So now as this is going on, while Dee's going back and forth from Florida to Vegas, during this time while I'm working on a cell phone store, he would say, hey, you know, do me a favor. I'm going to send a box there. Um, just make sure you're home to pick it up and stuff like that. And I was like, cool, 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 cool. And basically what he was doing is he was sending the money back because, you know, there's only so much money you can fly fly with without TSA being on you when you're trying to go through. He would do that. And then I would see the money come in and it would come in VCR and all that. And then I started seeing more and more. And, you know, he would come in town and a few times he would meet with the Connect and I would go with him. You know, I would see what he was doing and, you know, he'll get a few bales and then wrap the bales up and then package the bales up and then mail it back out. So bales of marijuana? Marijuana, yeah. They look like, visualize like a king size pillow is what it looks like. (laughs) That's exactly what it looks like. So yeah, they'll be, they'll be that. And they they weigh about 30, 40 pounds each, you know, and wrap them up and try to kill the smell as much as possible. And then he would send them back. Then he will fly back to Florida to be back in Florida by the time it arrives. I started seeing what he's doing. I was like, you know, D, this could be a lot more efficient instead of, you know, doing that, you know, I can just send it to you and meet it and all. And he was like, all right, that's cool. That makes sense. So at this time, you know, I have a little bit of money left that didn't burn up in the the cell phone store, probably maybe a thousand dollars or two thousand dollars, something like that. So it wasn't a lot. Did this, this new endeavor feel, okay, this is like, this is my last shot to, to do something to get back to where I was. That's, it did feel like that. That was a motivation. I think the, I think that those two things that I was motivated by 
One, I was intrigued by what he was doing and I felt it was almost a perfect idea. And I felt that I could turn it into a perfect idea. That was the first thing. The second thing I saw that and I started doing the math that if I am successful at turning this into a perfect idea, this will allow me to rebound what I just lost on that last bad business deal I just had. And then I can invest at the time. I, I had my eyes on a gas station I went to invest in. And so that was my motivation. It started out with, I just saw how inefficient it was the way they was doing it. And I said, you know, I can, I can, you know, help you guys make this a lot more efficient instead of, you know, traveling back and forth and instead of going back to the same place to ship it, you know, here's what we do. What, what, what I ended up setting up is instead of sending the money back to one address, we sent to send the money to one address and then send the bills back to, you know, a known address. I said, why don't we get UPS and FedEx and DHL people on payroll? And then all we need to do is use the right zip code so that our boxes end up on the right trucks. We don't need, we can make up any address that we want. The address is irrelevant. We just need to make sure our boxes get on the right trucks. And that was the bright idea. That was the first one. Then the, the next issue that we had to solve was even as much as we would wrap up these bales with dishwashing liquid and saran wrap and all this stuff to kill the smell, if you have 50 pounds of compressed high-grade marijuana together, the smell is so, so, so strong. And it literally will go through concrete. That's how strong it is. It's, it's kind of crazy. And so no matter how well we wrap it up, by the time the package would make it to Florida, these boxes would be reeking. And it'll just be screaming, hey, inspect this box. It has, you know, drugs in it. So that became a problem where a lot of the drugs would get intercepted. A lot of the weed was getting intercepted. It was not making it to this destination. So that was the second problem. Um, so that what that in with the result of that was the amount that he would send or would want to send was less and less. So instead of, you know, an entire bale, you know, might be 10 pounds or 15 pounds or 20 pounds and stuff like that. Paying off the drivers, doesn't that increase your risk as well? It does. And how much information are you giving them? Yeah, we didn't give a lot of information. And I'm sure they assumed it was something. But the information they gave is like, look, for every box that goes in your truck, we're going to give you 500 bucks. And, you know, when the driver's, you know, delivering 10 boxes a week, and that starts adding up because he's, you know, already making whatever his salary is, you know, you know, for UPS or DHL. And it just starts growing because you might, might get three, four boxes in a given day. And he, he makes an extra $2,000 in cash a day. You know, it, it really it really can change, change their perspective. So that's how it started. And luckily, we knew some people from the neighborhood, at least one person that worked for UPS. So that was a first ease, first connection to make. From there, we was able to recruit. It's actually really easy to recruit because all you have to do is you throw out a bait to the guy who drops your, your next delivery. You would just do a random order, come in, you throw out a debate, you see the debate, you, you see someone's a young guy, you say, hey man, you wanna make extra butter, whatever? And you see how he responds. If he doesn't respond well, you ignore it, like the conversation never happened. If he responds well, you talk more. So it wasn't hard to recruit people. Once we did that, we recruited a good number of drivers. We had you know, a good number of drivers on FedEx, we had a good number of drivers on UPS, and a good number of drivers on DHL. We intentionally avoided the postal service because in my ignorance, I assumed that as long as it's not going to the postal service, which is ran by the US government, it won't be a federal crime. I completely glossed over the fact that these drugs would cross the state line would automatically make it a federal crime. So again, this was just my ignorance to how the federal and how the legal system worked. That's how it started.
what were you feeling and what was D feeling as you climbed higher and higher? What was the peak of your operation? With the driver network, that really only solved one problem. That solved the distribution problem of getting it there and having it spread out enough because they were getting stopped a lot. But one, getting stopped didn't really sink the whole ship. And then it didn't really start to take off its volume because even then, maybe in a given month, 100 pounds would travel from Mexico all the way to Florida. And that's because the smell was very, very, very difficult to manage. There was this one day I was in the Bed Bath & Beyond um, with my girlfriend and I walked by this aisle and the aisle had these vacuum bags that were like for comforters. And it was like, you know, you can store your comforters, take all the air out and completely sealed. The light bulb went on in my head and I said, oh shit, this is what we need. I was like, wow, let me buy one of these and try it out. So, you know, I bought a box and I tried it out and the smell was completely gone and it took me literally five seconds. So two things got solved there. One, it took hours to basically wrap these bales hundreds of times with saran wrap and dish detergent and all that stuff to try to kill the smell. And this bag, you literally put the bag in there, close the bag, connect the vacuum cleaner, you're done. Maybe five minutes tops. That's when the volume got crazy. What was the volume? So it went from, you know, max 100 in a month to probably a couple hundred in a given week. That's just thousands of pounds. Yeah, exactly. What is the profit margin on that much product? On average, we would make probably between 900 to $1,000 per pound. And our costs would be around 250 to 500 per pound. So you're making 120000 a day? Mm-hmm. And that's gross. But, you know, half of that goes back to the Connect. Right. But still, like 60,000 a day and then like 21 million or almost 22 million a year. That's insane. It just happens so fast. I think as things change, you adjust to whatever the new normal is and you completely forget about what normal was a week ago. I mean, it went from making a couple thousand dollars to at any given time in the closet, there'll be half a million dollars all in cash. It just went so fast where even to count money, like my hands would be hurting. It was work. It was it was like, it was making tons of money, but it was still work. And then that created the new problem. The new problem is that cash is bulky and cash is hard to move around as well. Cash is just as hard to move around as drugs is. So every time you would solve one problem, it would create a new problem. Even though you moved up a level and it's a series of that over and over again, and you're just adjusting to whatever your new set of problems were. But at the at the height of it, our money that, that we would have keep ourselves at this all of a sudden that, you know, it started to grow. It definitely started to accumulate. My lifestyle changed. I bought a big house in Vegas. Because it went on for a few years, it started to become so normal, so desensitized. I wouldn't even flinch if I was on my way to drop a box off that, you know, had 40, 50 pounds in it. If there was a police car behind me, it literally wouldn't even bother me because I was so used to it. Do something long enough. It almost feels normal, even though it's not fucking normal. I was happy because I felt like I had freedom. It came at a price. And the price was there was this 24-7 sense of paranoia. And it was just like, I was just very paranoid, you know, because it's not even just law enforcement you have to worry about. You know, you can't manage every aspect of it. So you can't manage, you know, who, you know, I might, tr- I might trust my Connect, but do I trust my Connect's driver? 
Do I trust the guy that's helping the Connect driver? What if they set me up? Those are all the new problems that come. You start moving to a place where you're basically on an island and you start looking at anyone and everyone as a threat. So even though I had the freedom and I was happy that I had the freedom, as my island started getting smaller and smaller and smaller, I started feeling whether real or perceived threats in every direction. It took away the happiness that I did feel from the freedom that I had at this point because financial financial means wasn't an issue anymore. Seems like you just traded shackles. Exactly. That's exactly what happened. <laughs> Why are you laughing about that? I'm laughing because it's what the next thing happened. I traded shackles eventually for actual shackles. And it was just ironic because the way it all came to a head, it was all the factors that I could not control. But up to this point, control had been Frederick's strongest asset. Anytime an issue arose or something started to slip, he would take the reins and provide a solution. Nothing got past him. Even a casual trip to Bed Bath & Beyond was an opportunity to fine tune his business. His head was in the game 24-7. But sometimes, when we are so consumed by the success that's right in front of us, we are blinded by what could go wrong. And as he's mentioned, no matter how abnormal a situation, whether it's seeing crack cocaine dealt in your neighborhood daily or making more than 100 grand in a day, what might be alarming from an outside perspective simply becomes the new normal. He continued to build his business without the slightest hesitation. And along with it, he'd build the risk of getting caught. There were times where certain things would just start to get away from me. Your package would arrive safely in Florida on schedule. If a package of, you know, 40 pounds got there, you would expect a package of $40,000 to be en route to you. You know, one should land and the other one should land before the week's out. And there was starting to be slippage in that. It would come, but instead of being the first week, it might go to the next week. There was starting to be whispers that would get back to me of this such and such driver, they're making so much money, they're becoming more obvious. They went and bought a new car and they're driving to a job where they're making $40,000 a year, pulling up in a $100,000 plus vehicle. And those are the first signs that this was slipping away from my control. You can account for everything except human nature. The only thing you can account for in human nature is expect human nature to happen. Despite what someone may tell you their intentions are, despite what they may understand could create risk and issues, even for themselves, human nature is always going to happen. And people would go against their best interests all the time because they can't manage the human element within themselves. And that's what started happening. You know, people literally was going against their best interests. And then on the Mexico side, the same exact thing happened because we all rose together very, very, very quickly. My connect, he got kidnapped and held for ransom. We had to pay a $250,000 ransom to get him back. And during that time, when we were trying to figure out where he was, his driver was still handling transactions. As I think back, it was so crazy that these things would happen and we wouldn't even take a break as if these things was happening. You know, number two guy, his driver picked up the slack. Well, that became problematic because his driver now, his human nature is kicking in. He's getting involved more than he was ever involved before. He's making more than he was ever making before. So he sees, oh, I can do what the other guy was doing. Who needs him? So then he starts doing side deals. Well, then one of these side deals gets popped by the police. And the first person that person tells on is the driver. 
This is the problem with the drug game and the drug business is that there's always going to be an element that's out of your control because you cannot do this all by yourself. And as long as you have to involve another person, that's always going to be the X factor. And in this case, you know, we probably had 60 people maybe across two countries in four states. There's going to be more than an element of things that you can't control the more successful you get. That started to be the writing on the walls. Was that realization an indicator to stop? It should have been to a sane person. You know, for me, I always felt like a little bit more, I'll be able to reel it back in. If I just do this, I can fix it. Because in my mind, I always think I can fix something. And I think one of the biggest lessons that I learned is that Frederick can't fix everything. No matter how creative and thoughtful you think you are, there's going to be things that you can't fix. If you accept it that you can't fix it or change it, then you can at least deal with it from a place and position of truth versus typically what you see in a lot of entrepreneurship. We don't see the world as the reality that it actually is. We see the world with rose-colored glasses almost 24-7. And it's because you almost have to see the world as you want it to be and as it will be after you create this thing or after you do this thing. And you have to almost believe that that world exists so much to bring your vision to fruition. The other side of that is that, as most entrepreneurs I know, we also will struggle with being able to know when enough is enough or to know when this is not happening, cut your losses. And most times you'll see the entrepreneurs that go down with the ship because they don't see it. Frederick, blinded by optimism, failed to see the dangers lying under clouds of smoke. This entrepreneurial flaw is definitely something we've seen in our past founders. A particular individual that comes to mind is Kevin Gibbon. After his company endured a $63 million loss in a brutal public meltdown, Kevin continued to rebuild and rework his company. However, unlike Frederick, Kevin had investors to pull the plug when it was time. Frederick had lots of literal plugs to pull, but instead of stopping while he was ahead, the delicate system he built began cracking under human nature. So when did he go down with the ship? So at the time, to also facilitate the volume, I had bought a mail store, and I was at the mail store one day, and 10 or 11 trucks pull up, and it was all unmarked trucks. And from the left and right side at the same time, you see a bunch of people rushing in and they're rushing in fast with gun drawn. And the only thing you really notice is, you know, they all have these, <laughs> these windbreakers on. And the back of the windbreakers is DEA, ICE, you know, Las Vegas Police Department, Tampa Police Department. And they're all coming in with their guns drawn and I'm standing there. And that's when I realized this is all come to a head. And that's when it happened. I think the first thing was, how am I going to get out of this? Classic Frederick, always trying to solve the next problem. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That was the first thing. The next thing was the realization that you can't get out of this. Like that ship has already sailed. Like this bomb has already blown up. You can't stop a bomb from exploding that has already blown up. And that was the very next thought. And then that's when reality started to sit in that this thing had blown up. Not just that day, it had blown up probably a year prior to that day. And all the signs were there, but because I had my rose-colored glasses on and kept feeling like, okay, just a little bit more, I'll be able to fine-tune this, fine-tune this, and reel this thing back in, you just couldn't at that point. That's what really started to set in. You know, when when the agent walked up to me, he said, you know why we're here? 
And I said, I don't know where you're here. Then he took some handcuffs and he waved it in front of me. And he was like, yeah, you have a pair of these in your future. It was at that point that I knew that I wasn't, this was not a situation I could talk my way out of. They had been waiting for two things. One, to accumulate as much resources as possible so they can have a nice seizure. Two, to create a situation where it would be impossible to get out of it. All plausible deniability that I had, like you've never caught me with any drugs. You've never seen me. You don't have my prints on any drugs. You don't have, they, they killed all that because by the time I saw them, they had already had arrested the UPS driver. The UPS driver already told them what they needed to know. They had connected it with the case in, in, in Tucson, Nogales, with the driver doing a deal from Mexico. So they had already connected all those dots before I even saw them for the first time. They arrested me. They gave me a $50,000 bail. So I posted my bail. After that, you know, I got back out, got an attorney. He said, hey, you know, this is a conspiracy case. So the mandatory minimum is 10 years for conspiracy cases. Up until the time where I showed up for sentencing, I thought that, you know, because I was an Air Force veteran, all this stuff that and it was just marijuana, that I would get a slap on a wrist. The judge, she said, I'm sending you to prison because you did not stop. You had to be stopped. They didn't even give me a chance to say bye to my family. They put cuffs on me and they took me to the back. And I went to prison at that moment, right at that moment. But up until that time, I thought that I'll be able to get, you know, maybe probation or something else. Because, again, I've seen stories with other people that, you know, have gotten lighter sentences for marijuana related crimes. And they didn't look like me. They didn't come from my background. They, they probably had different attorneys and different resources and they was able to handle it better. And that's the case with America when it comes to the criminal justice system. You'll have two people that do similar crimes and they'll get two different outcomes. I got five, basically right under five. I think D got seven and then Fry got a little over seven. I think our criminal justice system is working as intended. It is only broken to the extent that our, our society is broken. Was your mom at that sentencing? Yeah, my mom was there, um, my dad and my girlfriend at the time. What was their reaction? They was just really upset. I mean, I remember hearing my girlfriend crying and then my mom was just in shock. I can only imagine what a parent feels like when they're unable to save their child. And I think that's how she felt is that, you know, I had got myself into something that she can't help me. She can't save him. Like anyone with entrepreneurial ambition, Frederick just kept pushing the limits of innovation. But as he innovated, improved the drug supply chain, and grew, that growth created greater visibility. When your operation depends on secrecy, growth increases risk of arrest. And so, inevitably, Frederick found himself surrounded by a crowd of armed officers. He scrambled to solve the very last problem of his operation, but even his ingenuity would be no match for a year-long federal investigation. Although his hand in the drug trade would come to an end, his exceptional creativity would remain. With this, he'd discover a place to flourish in the desolate conditions behind bars. You're sentenced, you're on the inside. What's that like? It's a culture shock. I mean, I didn't know what to expect and you just have to get adjusted to it. County jail time is is definitely a lot more uncomfortable than time in prison. But once you get settled into your routine, you start settling into, okay, I'm going to be here. Because at the time, I couldn't even think out and think about what my life was going to be for the next five years. It was very hard to conceptualize that and to look around and be like, I'm, these four walls is all I'm going to see for the next five years. I can't even put that in words and express how you even do that math in your head at 23 years old or 24 years old. You know, majority of my 20s was in prison. 
it just was a very hard thing to grasp. And then, you know, you would see a lot of things. You know, I would see guys come back with life sentences that were my age. You start being more thankful that you have a five-year sentence because the guy that's sleeping next to you, he might have a 40-year sentence or he might have life. He's never going home at all. What's the difference in mentality between those kinds of people? One of them are the guys who have hope that the future is going to be brighter. And they spend that time being mentors to others. They spend that time doing educational programs. They spend that time, you know, working out and just doing all that stuff, just trying to pass their time and staying productive. Then you have the guys that don't have hope. And those guys are the most dangerous. There's nothing more you can do to me. I'm never going home. Right. So if we get an altercation and I stab you, what else can you do to me? Right. You can't kill a man that's already dead. And the people who have no hope, they basically are walking dead people in their mind. And it's a very dangerous situation. And it's for that reason that most of the times the folks that have longer sentences are not housed with the folks that have less sentences. But luckily for me, because of the amount of drugs, I was classified as a violent offender. Which means I started my sentence in the same housing units with the people who had 40, 50, 60 and life, life sentences. Did you talk to those people? Yeah, you do. You talk, you build relationships. And some of the folks that are, I met that I'm friends with till this day. What you end up learning quickly is that prison is an environment where you give respect and you have to demand it back. And that's the currency of prison is respect. How did you demand respect? Well, I mean, the, the first thing you do is that you, you just don't let anything slide. You can't let anything slide. And if it gets physical, it gets physical. There was one time, I think it was about a seating. This is so crazy. But in the TV room, there's different sections. So you have the black section, you have the white section, you have the Mexican section. Within the Mexican section, you have the different Mexican gangs. And then within the white section, then you have the Asian, then you have the Pacific Islander. And then there's some sections that mingle better with others. So for example, the Serranos, the Mexican gangs, they mingle with the Blacks. The North Daniel Mexican gangs don't. So all this politics is what it's called is happening. So with that, there's areas where people sit and there's areas where you're not supposed to sit. So there was a guy and he basically was sitting in my area, right? So there's two ways you can handle that. He can be respectful and say, oh, my bad. I didn't realize this was your area, your seat, whatever, you can have it. Or he can be disrespectful and say, I'm in your area, so what? Then on my side, there's two ways I can handle it. I can demand respect and forcibly get him out of my area, or I can not do it and walk away. And then basically now, for, for forever going forward, I'm always gonna have that over my head where this other group or this other individual is gonna feel like I disrespected one of yours. And when I say yours, is that because prison politics is you move as a group, if I have an issue with someone that's not a part of my group, that means my entire group has an issue with that other group and vice versa. So the way that was settled is we end up fighting. I end up breaking my hand. But the way that it ended was I demanded my respect back. and I didn't have a problem with that group anymore. That's just how stuff happened in there. Do you feel like you had a choice? No, no, I absolutely did not have a choice. No. And it's not even something you're proud of. It's not even something that you want to avoid. But it's one of those situations that when you are in that environment and when you are, when you're living under that system, you have to operate how that system operates. And there was times where there will be riots. For example, there'll be a riot between the Mexicans and the Blacks. I had nothing to do with it. 
I wasn't even in the same area of the compound where this happened. It didn't matter. Any black person on that yard was a target to a Mexican, regardless of whether you had something to do with it or not. So I could be minding my business in a library and you can have guys jump on you and you, have, you, you don't even know what's going on. That's the environment and that's how it works. So when one moves, you all move. And you just always have to live by this code where you're always respectful. You're never looking for trouble. You always, excuse me, thank you, you know, that type of thing. But if it's not reciprocated, you have to demand it back. Frederick had to demand respect from prisoners within a system that didn't have respect for him. Although he had a clean record to prompt minimum sentencing, he didn't have the resources or appearance for it. In the U.S., on average, black males can expect to receive sentences that are 20% longer than white males convicted of similar crimes. Race not only played a significant role in Frederick's sentencing, but also in his life behind bars. And while this hyper-segregated and cutthroat culture may appear inhumane to the onlooker, for an inmate, it was accepted as survival guidelines. A professor at Brown University, David Scarbeck, discusses this in his book on prison politics called The Social Order of the Underworld. There, he mentions rational choice theory, an economic principle stating that no matter how absurd a behavior may appear, people will conform to that behavior if they deem it will serve their best interests. What may seem like irrational behavior to us is actually rooted in rational calculations made from the limited options inmates are presented with. And though it is rational, it is no less a challenge to an inmate's mental health. Frederick would use his critical problem-solving skills to confront this challenge and provide hope for them, or more literally, deliver it. I want to return to this idea of like those two types of prisoners, the ones that have hope and the ones that don't. How linked is that hope to a connection to the outside? It is. It is the link. And, you know, when you're forgotten about, you don't feel like you have a future. You don't feel like there's no one on the other side that's waiting for you or that's going to be there for you, whether it be a parent, a spouse. It makes it very hard to be able to have that kind of hope. Not only that, there's a level of mental health that comes from being able to have that support, being able to know that there's someone that cares about you. Prison, instead of being used as a place to rehabilitate people, it's just used as a place to warehouse people. And you're not getting the mental health assessments that you need. You're not getting, you know, access to communication to keep your social network strong. That's necessary for you to have a successful reentry. You're not getting any of those things. And they don't care about that. That's not their model. That's not their business model. What happens is you start getting diminishing returns because number one, you sentence people for too long of a time. And then two, once you release them, all their support structure has been disintegrated. You know, their mom may have passed while they was in. I might have been the only person in their life and they don't even have telephone numbers to communicate. One of the ways I spent my time is I would just basically daydream about what I was going to do, what my future was going to look like. And I would think about ideas. That's all I would do is daydream about ideas. Over the years, my security level dropped and I finally made it to a camp. So the type of people that you'll see at the camps are, you know, a lot of the people that are at the very end of their sentence. And the most important factor is the type of crime that they have is considered nonviolent. So a lot of times you'll see politicians, you know, disbarred attorneys or even, you know, CEOs and Fortune 500 companies and stuff like that. You'll see those guys at the camp. At the camp, what was cool is that all these guys would be teaching just impromptu classes on knowledge that they had. And it would be, you know, a guy to teach you how to trade or a guy to teach you how to do business models or a guy to teach you how to do Excel spreadsheets and stuff like that. So there would be people just teaching classes. Sell me this pen. And I used that time to really experiment and brainstorm and bounce my ideas off of these folks. 
during this time was the app boom, where Apple was taking off, the app store was taking off. Everything was about the Nix app that was coming out. That's what all you see in a publication at the time. And one of the ideas was to make it easy for people to communicate because I always wanted to get pictures from people. They always never had time to do it. It was always, you know, jumping through hoops. They would finally get to Walgreens and print them out. Then they would drive around their car with the envelope in their car for, 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 for two weeks before they get to the post office. And it'll be forever before I get the photos. So I said, you know, you should be able to just do this right from your phone. And that's where the idea started. And then once I was released and I was thinking about, okay, you know, this is day one. What am I going to do? And I chose that idea because it felt the most authentic. And I also felt like based off of the resources I had, that I was probably be the one that I could pull off. After spending five whole years in prison, Frederick had an intimate understanding of the prison industrial complex. He had a deep understanding for what inmates were in need of, hope. Hope is the key to achieving our goals. And that's not just a platitude. According to the American Psychological Association, hope has repeatedly shown in psychological studies to increase an individual's chances of achievement. APA also reports that our levels of hope depend on the quality of our relationships. Can you imagine how forgotten and lonely you would feel if you were unable to communicate with your closest loved ones? That said, the said reason we imprison criminals and then release them to the public is because of the belief that once released, they will become citizens that can contribute positively and safely to our world. However, if they are given limited opportunities to foster hope, how do we think they could possibly accomplish this transformation? Frederick was determined to fill the wide gap between what is expected of inmates and the opportunities they are given to meet those expectations. So while I was in prison, um, my friend Alfonso, who I had been friends with for a long time, we, had, we were friends in the Air Force. He's both from Tampa, Florida as well. He reached out to me and just said, you know, just checking in. I said, hey, when I responded, wrote him back, I said, hey, you know, I got some good ideas, some stuff. He knew that, you know, I had a successful business in the past. So he was, you know, he was always, he took the approach that, yeah, you know, if you want to do something, you know, I'm sure it makes sense, you know, let's do it. Once I got out, I reached out to him. I went to the halfway house and I pitched him an idea. He liked it. And we, we went in business together. It was, it was that simple. And, you know, we had known each other for years, so we definitely was very comfortable and we trusted each other and all that. And what steps did you make sure that the people that you're working with on this project reflected the group that you wanted to serve? It was very natural. Some of the first people that, you know, we got money from, you know, we was getting, you know, $500,000 a time. These are guys that I knew from the neighborhood, the guys who knew and respected me already. And that's how we was able to get small amounts of money in to kind of get the business off the ground. Because of our mission, we would attract people, you know, when we would hire that, you know, wanted to be part of what we were doing because they either dealt this problem with a family member or they themselves had been through this and they understood how hard it was. So it's just always very authentic. When we first started out, we went to a small accelerator. And then after that, we went on to Y Combinator and then that really elevated our profile. What was interesting is I didn't really know what Y Combinator was. Y Combinator is an accelerator that, and it really focuses on technology companies. So they'll invest a small amount of money, but the real value from YC is it's a very tight, close knit of people where you can get in front of whoever you want to get from, whether it's you want to get in from the CEO of Square or if you want to talk to somebody in Sullivan. And everyone has the attitude of helping each other. When we went to Y Combinator, we already had a product in the market. We already had revenue. We already had customers. And I think that's what, it, what, what they was impressed by. They actually reached out to us and said, hey, we really think you guys should apply. We're really strongly suggesting you, or you apply. And I said, okay, well, I'll just go and apply. And then we got in. 
we raised a million before YC, then we raised another 2.3-ish, 2.5 after YC. And that really allowed us to put some real resources behind it and really the company really started to expand and grow. And it started to resemble more of what it is today than it was prior. Because when we started, we only had one product and it was the photo product. Now we have six consumer-facing products that allow people different options on how they can stay connected. Pigeonly was a product so impactful and important that it was able to draw attention from the people at one of the biggest startup accelerators in the world, even before Frederick applied. And in terms of mission, it speaks volumes that the very people that the app was created for were so connected with its mission that they became its developers. Clearly, Frederick was no stranger to success. But the legitimacy of being accepted by Y Combinator and building out a product with the help of high-profile investors painted a completely new picture of success. Looking back, there's a poetic beauty to this story. Frederick saw the effect of the crack cocaine he was selling through his classmate's mother. And in that moment, he knew he didn't want to hurt people in order to make money. And while selling marijuana was a better alternative and proved extremely lucrative, it wasn't exactly building up his community. With Pigeonly, his journey had finally come full circle as positive impact became the center of Frederick's career. Where are you with Pigeonly today? And what does it look like? What services do, does it offer? And what do you feel like its impact is? Just to recap, you know, what we are is we're a platform that makes it easy for people to search, find, and connect with the incarcerated loved one. And it can do so with our six products that mainly fit into three categories. The first one is our phone service, which saves people money on expensive prison phone calls. In most cases, it cuts the cost of a prison phone call by as much as 80%. And then the second category is financial services, which basically provides like a Venmo or cash up experience, makes it very, very easy for people to easily put money on their loved one's commissary account or phone account. And then finally, we have our um, postal mail services, which allows people to send things like greeting cards, postcards, letters, photos directly from their cell phone, tablet, computer. I would say the most recent product we've, we've been building is our government-facing product, which basically provides correctional institutions a tool, software that they, allows them to authenticate where their mail is coming from as far as their inmate mail is coming from so that they can prevent the flow of contraband. So one of the things I noticed while I was there is that the people who didn't have the financial means to stay connected and didn't have the financial support to stay in touch with their loved ones, those were the folks, the folks that I would see come back. And it wasn't until I got out that I saw that my general observation while I was in prison was backed up by over 40 years of research that show that communication and education are the two most important factors that impact recidivism. So if someone who's incarcerated has access to education, if someone who's incarcerated has access to communication with their support network, they're less likely to reoffend. What advice would you give yourself or someone in the same position as you that is struggling with those two worlds and trying to find that, that entrepreneurial spirit or that part of them that wants to create something? Advice would you give a person like that? I think my first advice would be that it's okay to branch off with something that you don't have a background and something you don't know anything about because I didn't know what I didn't know. Put yourself in situations where you can be a contributor to someone else's idea or be a contributor to, to a business that someone else is building just so you can learn the language. Because I think that's what's that's the missing piece is learning the language. And once you learn the language, you can branch off and do your own thing. I think also embrace the fact that you come from a unique background because you have a unique and diverse background. You're going to have a unique, and diverse approach to a problem that you want to solve. And you can have unique understandings of a problem that most people won't. And I think that's your opportunity.
can't think of a better founder to end our drug dealing series with. Frederick Hudson's story dives into the heart of why and how each of these gifted entrepreneurs found themselves in the drug trade. Frederick constantly transitioned in and out of starkly contrasting experiences from the bustling and progressive city streets of Brooklyn to the segregated suburbs of Florida, from a big house and a glamorous nightlife in Las Vegas to the four walls of a prison cell. And with each transition, Frederick highlights how easily we as humans adapt to the systems that surround us. The founder mentality that we encounter so often in this podcast, a mentality of independence and ambition, allows the individual in question to assess their circumstances and identify how they can best improve or change them to materialize their vision of freedom and success. From what we've heard, drug dealing is a life of tremendous stress and paranoia. It is not an easy business to excel in. But under their environmental conditioning, these founders were led to believe it was the best business open to them. And yet, the label criminal blinds many of us from the managerial and entrepreneurial skills it takes to execute operations like this. If we saw this, we could actually bring people out of criminal activity and into the immense potential they have to make a positive impact on us all. Frederick is another exception to the statistics of recidivism, another born entrepreneur who defied his labels as a convict and discovered the path he was truly intended to pursue. Now, with Pigeonly, he's attempting to make the journey to self-actualization a facet of the prison system and not a rare chance of defying it. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Joseph Cho, Matt Fernandez, Spencer Khan, Sophia Donner, Shannon O'Halloran, Jess DeSena, Sebastian Gazada, Samuel Stenica, and Maura Lynch. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from Avnish Sengupta, Prerika Chopla, Mitchell Lynn, Lise Caldwell, Jessica Gung, Zachary Loudermilk Batia, Kylie McCreary, Lauren Pomerantz. Our outreach and research lead is Jessica Lynn with support from Sasha Ivanova, Marie Vaughn, Lisa Lath, Ankita Numbiar, Sarah Hobson, Gary Zeng, and Melody Sopani. Our design and social media team lead is Ling Mu Hu, with support from Tiffany Dang, Ayla Erickson, Shruti Ramanand, Carla Ruvalkava, and Alana Donnelly. The video editing team is Eli Lawrence, with support from Melanie Mack and Nina Maravich. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.